really well. And based on the number of questions that we had before we started, I think, uh, I think I'm going to at least try that. Just uh, before we go, we talked that I had prepared and opened up for you to raise your hands and ask uh, any questions you want. Yes. How did Krishna become a god? How did Krishna become a god? That's a very obvious question. We also believe in progress, but we don't believe in that much progress. <laughs> Actually, uh, I think it was Lorenzo Snow who said, uh, as man is, God was, as God is, man will become. So he also noticed the word become. In it. And then that gets the mainstream Christian a little bit upset because, you know, you're not supposed to become God, you're supposed to worship God. You know what I'm saying? And anyway, God means one, so there's a big no vacancy sign up there. We use a word called demigod. Kind of, it kind of keeps us out of hot water as far as some magic are concerned. As demigod is, man will become, as man is demigod. Lord Brahma is the demigod who created the universe. There's demigods in charge of each and every planet. There's demigods. The sun god is a demigod. The personality who presides over the moon planet is a demigod. There's a demigod in charge of rain, Indra. There's a demigod in charge of the oceans, a demigod in charge of the rivers, there's a demigod in charge of grass, trees. There literally in this universe, in this solar system, there are 33 million demigods, which is probably a pretty trim number, considering we're talking about an entire universe with countless stars and planets. Even a small little bird like Spanish Fork probably has 500 people on the payroll to keep the water going, to keep the roads maintained, to keep the electrical. So in each and every universe, 33 million demigods is probably a pretty trim number, although from our little tiny ant like point of view, it may not seem so. So you can become a demigod. You, you do pious, righteous, selfless, philanthropic activities. You do good, and by the law of harvest, you get, you get good. You do good, you get good, right? What you plant, you reap. What you sow, you shall reap. The law of karma is action and reaction. You sow the seed, you face the deed. Whatever you do comes back to you. The law of cause and effect ensures the balance is perfect. Detecting whatever you do, it will resurrect. Death is not the end, it's just a bed. Whatever you've done will circle back again. The body may die, but your karma standing by, we are born and live and die, continue to suffer and cry. As the air follows, as the aroma follows the flowers, the heat pursues the fire, your karma will track you as soon as you leave the funeral pyre. Karma decides how you read your boy, come your storm, how you humiliate, straight or deformed, animal or human, sheltered or drift. Karma is what makes the world go round. It's cause and effect right down there on the ground. Flows when you open the ground, up and down, drawn by their deeds, drawn by their needs. Is there any purpose for our life on earth that we just die and continue to take birth? Is there any escape from the pain coming back again and again and again and again? Well, yeah, because you're not the flesh, you're not the mind. Eternal spirit design, the image of Almighty Divine. Sign of the service of life. 
Tragic by unselfish action, serving the Lord with dispassion, acting only for his satisfaction, devoted souls achieve extraction from karmic reaction. If you want to burn up your karma, practice the Dharma, please the Lord, passion by his hand, acting according to his plan, and never, ever, ever, ever come back to this mortal world again. So if you do good, you get good. But there's a problem with that. The good people go to become demigods. Demigods have a much higher standard of life, they have greater bodily beauty. They live hundreds of thousands of years, but they also have to die. After the, the fruits of their pious activities performed down here on Earth are exhausted, then they have to come back and take Earth here again. Sam was given up a plane. You can stay only up a loop in the plane, but only as long as there's gas in the tanks. But when there's no gas left in the tanks, you have to come back and land at Salt Lake City International Airport and come back to the start over again. So, transcendental life, life which actually can result in liberating the soul from this material world in its three levels. You call it terrestrial, celestial, and celestial. We call it lower, middle, and higher. It's like three levels in the prison house. There's class B level, class C level, and there's class A level. Maybe the class A level has TV privileges and, you know, better food. Gets to spend more time in the yard. But if you, if you have no greater view than to elevate yourself in the prison from class C to B and then from class B to A, then kind of missing the point because we're souls. We're souls. And the point is not to just improve our material conditions, but to get out altogether of the prison house of this material world. So if you do inconsiderate, insensitive, cruel things to other living beings, then that will come back. And if you do good, that will also come back. But neither one of you is going to, neither one of those, they're Bad is like burlap ropes, and good is like golden ropes. But they're still ropes. See what I'm saying? But when you chant the names of God, when you directly step into that fourth category of activities, or third category of activities, which is God-centered, directly to serve and please the Lord, then you're breaking the bonds of karma. If you want to burn up your karma, practice the dharma, pleasing the Lord, passion by his hand, act according to his plan, to never ever come back to this material again. So, it was a short question, but there was a lot to it. <laughs> what else? Yes? So many uh, students from Schnaupolis may be uh, enlightened if you can answer this query. That if God is the creator and preserver of the universe, then why can't God stop the human beings to do uninterrupted actions? Krishna says, Nevam Papa got to see Krishna says that, first of all, he has his own beautiful spiritual world. He originally, although it was an embryonic form, he originally awoke there in the spiritual world. We were invited to stay and serve the Lord. And most souls, I, I know in LDS we believe that every soul has to come here to learn lessons that you can only learn in a mortal body. We're a little different from that. Our philosophy is that souls are not created because God's eternal or eternal. But there's a point at which we wake up. We, 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 we come out of our sleep. 
And then we have a choice to stay in the spiritual world and serve God or to leave the spiritual world and try to serve our senses, ourselves. Now, one quarter of the living beings, one quarter go to this material world, wanting to try it out, see how it fits to be independent of God and strike out on our own. Frank Sinatra. But three-quarters of souls actually remain there. And as we get covered, as we grow, we're, we came here to savor, to enjoy matter. So we get material body and senses, cover the soul so that we can interact with matter. But the souls that remain in the spiritual world, they generate, they, they block, they do their own spiritual, eternal, called Siddha cities, their spiritual bodies. And they chose not to come here whatsoever. So each and every one of us is here by choice. Um, and by choice, we can reverse the process and also go back to home, back to Godhead as well. But God, you can't, you know, it, it would be counterproductive to make, this, to make this material world too comfy. See what I'm saying? He loves us too much to let us settle into this material world. And certainly, you know, there's a lot that's good about it. You know, we're all middle class. We all have a good education. We have good income. Well, we got it pretty good. We got it pretty good. But God wants us to get it pretty great. He doesn't want us to have suffer birth, death, disease, and old age. See what I'm saying? And you might have it really good in this life, but maybe next life won't be quite so good. Maybe you have no idea the kind of future, the kind of body that you're creating in your next life by your current choices. George Bernard Shaw said over 100 years ago, we are the living graves of murdered beasts, slaughtered, slaughtered to satisfy our appetites. We never pause to wonder our feasts, if animals like humans have rights. We pray on Sundays that we have light to guide our footsteps on the path we tread. We're sick of war, we don't fight, and yet we gorge ourselves upon the dead. Like carrying crow, we live and feed on meat, never considering the pain and suffering we cause, unless we treat defenseless animals which were regained. How can we hope to attain that peace we are so anxious for? We pray for it to God, while outraging the moral law of cruelty against his offspring more. So considering that we didn't want to serve God, we didn't buy into the spiritual world and selfless, transcendental life, he get, he, he's quite generous, I think you'll agree. He gave us a whole world with enough on the planet to sustain ourselves, to have shelter, to have food, to produce children, to act out our childlike fantasies of being independent from God. But ultimately, that's false. We're not independent from God. And the world which is catered for our independence cannot be an ideal or even a very good world in the end. Um, and so it's, it's, there are serious shortfalls built into this world, just like there are serious discomforts built into the prison house for the ultimate reformation of the prisoners, you see what I'm saying? So, and another thing is, don't blame God for your, your choices. And we chose to be here, and we chose to make a royal mess of it too. I mean, just look at the blues and the reds. And I mean, it's just, Bhakti said out to our spiritual master, spiritual master said, this material is no place for a gentleman. I think most of you will agree with 
So all of this is a catalyst, inspiration. Finish up our business here, go back home, man. That's a good question, and the corollary question is, do we create karma as a demigod? Do we create more karma if we get a good birth as a demigod? And if, if let's say, we have to take birth as an animal and find out in our next life what it's like to be on the other end of the fork, are we creating karma as an animal? And the answer is no. We're only in the human form. Do we actually create karma, good and bad? And based on the choices that we make in the human form, we get elevated or we get pushed down. We get superhuman or we get subhuman. And if you're fortunate enough to be a demigod, and I say that with reservations, um, you're, you're there burning up, using up the results of your good karma called Quinlan. And should you take birth in a hellish situation, either in the human form or in the subhuman form, you're burning up your bad karma. And so only in the human form are we actually accountable for the activities that we perform. So, everything's calculated. Yam yam papi Says just like the air carries aromas from a rose garden, it's a very pleasant aroma from a garbage pit, there's a pungent aroma. So every choice we make creates a certain consciousness, a certain aroma. We, each one of us, and you can't see aroma, right? So you can't, we can't see each other's consciousness, but, but we are creating our own consciousness by the type of food we eat, by the Halloween's coming up. Go ahead and binge on the horror movie, see what ramifications that's gonna have for your future life. <laughs> Friends, probably no decision is more important in our life than who's in our inner circle. Who are we going to actually spend significant amounts of time with? Based on that decision, you're going to go up or you're going to go down. Well, I can't leave my friends. I've known them since high school. Well, the pain of leaving them is going to be insignificant compared to the pain of letting them drag you down to wherever they're going. Maybe. So you sow in this life, and we reap down the line. Some of the seeds that we plant now, based on the choices that we make, uh, will, will produce a reaction in this life. And some of the seeds that we plant will not produce a reaction until the next life. Just like, you know, you get the tomatoes and cooks, cooks greenery in, uh, in March, and some of the tomatoes are 60 days, some of the tomatoes are 80 days, some of the tomatoes are... 120 days. So the karmic reactions to your seeds, some of them are going to mature in five years, and some of them are going to mature in ten years, and some of them are going to mature in your next life. And in fact, the birth that we take, there's probably no more significant event than after leaving this body, what womb or what egg am I going to go into? You see what I'm saying? That's, that's going to be, you know, the birth we take is going to be real direct result of the decision that we made in this life. But of course, let me hasten to say we're spirit. We have no business being in this material world, either taking birth from an egg or taking birth from the heavenly planets. We're not supposed to take birth 
And if we live a God-centered life, we can burn out both good and bad karmic reactions going back to going back to God. Hare Krishna. And you, I mean, we chant Hare Krishna, but every culture has their own names of God. There are 200 names of Allah in the Old Testament. And uh, in India, there's Vishnu, Sanjana, Vishnu, Vishnu, Bhattaro, Bhagavad Many, many, probably you yourself get up every morning and probably from memory chant a thousand names of God before your home altar. So we, we've all, nobody can say, I don't have the tools to go back to home to God. Of all the senses, the tongue is the most difficult to control. If you control the tongue, if you exercise discipline in the business of the tongue, then spiritual life is pretty much conquered. The tongue eats and the tongue speaks. So if you can, as a child of God, speak chastely about God as much as possible, and if you can eat cruelty-free food, you can eat without harassing and causing suffering and pain unnecessarily to other of God's children, then, uh, then you control the tongue. And when the tongue is controlled, you're a yogi. You can control the tongue in the matter of speaking and eating, then the hearing, smelling, and seeing will, will follow suit. So we control the tongue by chanting Hare Krishna, talking about Krishna. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've said the name Krishna maybe 10 times in the last 20 minutes, right? So we're not just mindless chanters. You know. Talking about Krishna means talking about the meaning of life, you know, the, the dynamic by which we suffer, and, you know. I mean, doctors have been talking about the cure for cancer for generations, haven't they? The cure for COVID has stumped the whole scientific community. They talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about it, and that they, they haven't solved the problem. But if you talk about God, you solve the cancer problem, you solve the COVID problem, you solve the AIDS problem, you solve the death problem. So, here's a, here's a choice for you. What are you going to talk about? <laughs> Any more questions? Yes? Um, you shared the significance of the number 108. Can you share anything more about that? That's a technical question. I can only say two things, but if you look it up, there's lots and lots of stuff on it. Not only pertaining to our culture, but many other cultures too. I mean, especially if you're a mathematician, you just like get, you just go, you get fireworks in your head whenever you think of 108, you know. But uh, there are 108 Upanishads, the principal scriptures, and then there are, in the spiritual world, there are, of course, uncountable zillions and zillions and zillions of liberated souls, and God expands himself. It's not just, he's one God, but he's all powerful, so he, he can assume many forms like he did with Mother Yashoda to become her child. So God's with all of the living beings in the spiritual world itself. But of all the liberated souls, in, this, in the kingdom of God, there are 108 principal ones called the Gopis. So those are the only two things I know. I know there, there's a lot more, but I haven't yet personal study about it. So any more questions? I'll go with the students, and then I'll come to you, Rob. Yes? Um, I'm curious. 
I'm glad you asked that, you know, because that's that's always the most compelling. You know, what makes you take? How did you get to where you want to go? I went to India in 1969. The country was divided. <laughs> what else is new? <laughs> there were the doves and the hawks about Vietnam, the civil rights. It wasn't quite as acrimonious as it is nowadays. But again, I felt, I just felt the whole thing was distasteful. And so I thought I'll absent myself. I was 22 years old. It's a time to go and see the world anyway. So, you know, everything kind of converged. But I went to, uh, let's see, where did I go? I spent six months in France. I lived on the Canary Islands picking tomatoes. Um, I lived in Greece, one of those beautiful Mediterranean islands for a while, tutoring multimillionaires' children English. And then um, from Istanbul, I went to India, overland, in 1969. Came into Delhi. Went to Calcutta. Now, interestingly enough, the first time I heard the Hare Krishna chant, Hare Krishna started in 1965 in America when our spiritual master arrived at the age of 70. But I had left in 67, so I didn't uh, encounter the mantra of the devotees in America. But it was in uh, late 69 that I was in Calcutta, and I was staying in a hostel, a big dormitory hostel in Choringi. And I picked up a copy outside of Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And I was really enjoying it, really into it. And there were some other Americans, and they'd gotten some of the hand symbols and all that. I said, uh, Chris, why don't you come out with us? We can find some locals to do some chanting. And I said, no, I'm just going to keep reading this book. So it, they mustn't have had to go very far, because within just a few minutes, I heard, and it was big, it was big, you know, arched windows, and it was hot, so the, the, the windows were open. So within a few minutes, I heard what I thought was, Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama, I thought, well, that's interesting. So then, um, then I went to Bali. I spent, uh, I spent uh, two months in Bali. I rented a beautiful stone hut on Kuta Beach for $30 a month. Kuta Beach is now all $500 a night motel rooms. And next to my hut, there were a bunch of Californians. And they chanted Hare Krishna every night. They invited me over. So then I realized that what I had heard in Calcutta was actually Hare Krishna. So I didn't make any spiritual connections in India. People go to India as young people looking for a guru, looking for yoga. And it's famous for all those resources. But in those days, they didn't have the connectivity that they have today. Right now we have Kaya from Norway, we have Sophia from Germany, and all because of the internet. You know, we're hosted as a host, and they're volunteers, and they, we find each other very easily, you know, across the whole globe. But I don't even think in those days they even published Lonely Planet, you know, so you were, it was strictly hit or miss, and I, I miss, you know. <laughs> I just ended up with a bunch of Westerners, you know, boasting about, you know, so imagine my surprise, I run out of money and gone to Australia. It's the closest, you know, developed country where you can get a lot of money fast. And I thought, I'll spend six months in Australia and then I'll have enough money to go wherever I want. Mauritius, back in Bali. So I was being spewed out of a 
the subway downtown Sydney, Wingert Station on George Street on a winter's evening. And a little flash of color caught my eye. I looked and there was a Westerner with a corta, with a doughy, a strange mark on his forehead. He had a back to God Hit magazine. And I'm like, I, I think I did a quadruple take, not just a double take. That was the last thing I'd expected in Australia, of all places. But he was a real thing. He just arrived a month before with a companion as missionaries, having been sent by a spiritual master. And fortunately, the house they rented there on Potts Point was just within easy walking distance of where my wife and I were staying. So they had Monday, Wednesday, and Friday talks, and Kirtan, the chanting. And Sundays, every Christian temple, there's about 820 Christian temples worldwide, they have a what they call the Sunday love feast. So I mean, anybody's invited to have a little philosophy of chanting and then we're gonna go downstairs and eat. And Raleigh here has been cooking all day to make sure we have enough for our extra sized crowd today. So I'm gonna thank you. Yeah, so uh, after six months, we earned the, the amount of money that we originally intended, and we stuck out it. And we said, okay, can we, can we live in the temple? Can we just live in the temple for 10 days before we launch? You know, and said, sure. So we lived in the temple. Um, and then we, then we stuck out and we were going to go to Perth. We we're going to hitchhike to Perth and then take a boat to Mauritius. So we got out somewhere in, near Adelaide in this little mining town. And we wanted to stop for lunch, and we'd become a veget vegetarians by then. So we got this, we got into this restaurant. There's this 50 year old gum chewing waitress, you know. She, she gave us the menu. There wasn't a single vegetarian item. They didn't even have spaghetti with marinara sauce. That's, you know, you got to put up where you're in the So we said, can we, can we pay for the lamb and mashed potatoes and mint jelly? And can you just leave the lamp off and give us more mashed potatoes and mint jelly? And she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we looked across at each other and, you know, we just had the same thought, you know. This isn't going to work, you know. This isn't going to work. Traveling, superficially experiencing cultures, we had developed, we, now we wanted to do the inner journey, the inner journey. So we said, okay, let's go back. So we, we turned around, we, we we scraped the lamb off, <laughs> ate the potatoes, stuck our thumb out, going east instead of west. Now here's just one little postscript. At that time, the, the original devotees had made what I thought was a critical mistake. We originally had a temple in Potts Point near King's Cross, which was the happening place in Sydney. It was R&R &R for all the Americans on, uh, from Vietnam, the war was going on. We would go out there and distribute so many books and we could get so many people come to the Sunday. So for some reason, I didn't know I wasn't part of the inner circle. They, they rented this place in Bondi Beach, which now is a really happening place. But in then, then it was reminding me of Pete Seeger's little houses made of ticky-tacky, middle class, you know. And so, so I said, okay, so I'm gonna surrender. I'm gonna become a monk and I'm gonna go live in a little brick house in a suburb. And I thought, I'm so surrendered, you know. <laughs> I just, but doing nothing but traveling for three years, now I was going to give up my traveling and restrain myself, become a monk. But 
um, Prabhupada, our spiritual master, he wanted us always to keep a connection with our spiritual home. So he said that every devotee who resides in his temple would go to India, to Mayapur World Headquarters in Vrindavan, the place where Krishna took his birth, once every three years, and every leader, every temple president would go every year for a big convention there in March. So I was on my way to India within a few months, and then within the first 10 years, I went to India about 15 times. I didn't even have to give up travel. Krishna says, when you, when you give up five dollars for God, God gives you a million dollars in return. And within that million dollars, there's so many five dollar bills and things. You're not the loser, but you're the gainer many, many times over. So thank you for asking that question. Now you know who I am. <laughs> what else? You had a question, Ron? Yeah. Oh, I know. So I'm curious, so, um, about the choice of independence, so independent choice of the jiva. So the independence of the individual soul. Yeah. So, um, the soul is originated for spiritual world, kind of material world, it and you try, try to enjoy, but originally this world is not designed to enjoy. You need, if you want to be happy, you must go to spiritual world. So, I don't know, it's analogies that, you know, if let's say I live with my father and he fought my father, he created me to enjoy me originally, to ex expand the pleasure. And eventually I live in him, but he telling me, you can go, but you cannot be happy without me. So, I don't know, there's some element of unfairness that, you know, that some, he holds me sort of. Well, whatever, I mean, everyone of us, well, most of us have experienced this, if we were fortunate enough to have a father at home, is that the father, of course, he does have children for his own enjoyment. That's why parents have them. But they enjoy you prospering, you growing, you maturing, you being happy. The mother will feed the child first. The mother will get more pleasure from feeding the child, and she may even forget to eat herself. So there's no uh, contradiction between God wanting to enjoy us and having our best interests at heart. I mean, that's even true in the mundane world. And how much more true is it? How much more is God's capacity to enjoy? How much more is our capacity to enjoy when we're no longer enjoying through matter, but we're enjoying with our original spiritual senses? The capacity for enjoyment is millions and millions of times over. And His capacity to propel us forward, to fulfill our dreams, to make us the men and women of faith that he hopes it will be, his capacity is unlimited. So on our own, there's very little we can do. We're very small, we're very tiny. Actually, the soul is described, Keshaga Satika Bhaga Panasata Tadashama Shruti Jivita Shruti. The soul, which animates his body for 60 or 70 years, lives in the region of the heart, is one ten thousandth the size of the tip of a that's the basic rough dimensions of the soul. So what can we do on our own to make a difference, to fulfill our dreams? But when we get in the middle of what our loving, all-powerful Father wants for us, then there's limits. Literally, when God's breath is blowing in your direction, there are no limits to what you can do. So on the one hand, yes, we're very significant, insignificant. We're not very powerful. But on the other hand, there's immense potential there depending, again, on the choices that we make. And that 
son who left the father. Um, honestly, there's so many more resources that he has at his disposal when he remains at least in harmonious contact with the father. Not that, you know, we don't leave and we don't go out and we don't do. Jesus Christ can't, he, he left, but he left with a different purpose. He didn't leave out of envy of God. But he left being one, being wanting to please the Lord and bring souls back to God. So there's leaving and then there's leaving also. Any other questions? We usually spend a half an hour, so we've got another three or four minutes. One more question, then we have a bit more chanting. Then we're going to go downstairs and enjoy Raleigh's feast. And there will be quite a, a long line for the buffet. So if you do have some questions, you're welcome to stay up here and ask questions and probably, and probably just be able to serve yourself just, just as fast anyway. Let the line go down a bit. Well, maybe one more question in my RT. Elaine, are you going to sing RT? Elena? Ivana? Elena? Elena, right? Yeah. Ivana? Elena? Wherever you see the four-handed form, it's it's a little more like we say Krishna at the office. It's like God at the office. Vishnu is responsible for the creation, maintenance, and dissolution of millions and millions of universes. From him come Brahma, from him come Shiva. So the four-armed form is in a different category, but most of the images up there are different flavors of love. Friends, lovers, and that's that's what God's all about. We say God is love. That's kind of a, you know, platitude that we say. I wouldn't say God is love because love is a verb and God is a person. But love is what he does and it's what he's most interested in, in his original form. Um, and it's what he's really good at too. So we're all missing out. Imagine a father He's off for the weekend, Saturday morning. He has five boys. Three of the boys get up seven, eight o'clock in the morning. They go out in the backyard, wrestling, playing catch, just hollering, hooting, just having a great time. Dad and his three boys. But there's two other boys sleeping and still in bed. So as much fun as a father's having with those three boys, he's not unaware of the two boys that are still in bed, and he wishes that they would come down and join him. See what I'm saying? So God is engaged with millions and millions of uncountable, liberated souls, and he's he's fully engaged. He, you know, God's he has the capacity that he's if he's doing one thing, it doesn't take away from another thing. See what I'm saying? And on the absolute platform, one minus one still it leaves one. 
Thank you. 